It's Violet. Before we dive into today's show, I've got a quick favor to ask. We have a survey up on our website, harpers.org survey. Would you please take it? It shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete. As we approach five years of the podcast, we have been discussing ways to make the show even better. That's why it's crucial we hear from you. The survey's up at harpers.org survey. Thank you in advance for lending your voice. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the May issue, the novelist and critic Lauren Euler reports from aboard the Celebrity Beyond, a large cruise ship that hosted Goop at Sea. No, Gwyneth Paltrow did not want to talk to her. Part of Euler's piece critiques and responds to the most iconic account of a luxury cruise, David Foster Wallace's Shipping Out which he originally published in the January 1996 issue of Harper's and later expanded and retitled A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. I was joined by Euler and John Baskin, deputy editor of Harper's, to discuss Wallace's essay, style, and memification, the commercialization of authenticity, wellness, class, how writing by men and women is still discussed differently, and the battle between irony and sincerity. So, Lauren, I'm just going to start at the most basic place to start. What's your problem with David Foster Wallace? What do you what what don't you like about him? So, when I was writing the piece, I knew from the very beginning that I would have to quote unquote reckon with David Foster Wallace and with the cruise essay in particular. Um, and I am a, a a, a big fan of David Foster Wallace. I consider him quite influential. So when I reread the cruise piece, I I hadn't re, I hadn't read a lot of David Foster Wallace since I was in my early twenties, which is I think when a lot of people from my generation um, read him. He's taught in a lot of um, sort of like college writing classes, and I, if you if you're lucky enough to take a contemporary literature class, he's he should be taught there as well. Um, so you really like introduced him and you're like, wow. Uh, and then I hadn't um, read it in, in a while. And so when I went back to it, I did have, as I say in the piece, I had this sort of sense that like it wasn't going to be as good as I remember from when I was 19 years old. Right. And that turned out to be true. But uh, the <laughs> issue that not true. I mean, the thing about it is right. Like he is amazing I don't object to the term genius, um, and he is a genius. Uh, but the cruise piece in particular, it has some problems, which I'll get to in a second. But the 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 problems are that there's a bit of a like performative. I'm doing a magazine article thing at the beginning, which I find distasteful, um, and then it goes on so long. And this is the piece that I really um, realized something about him, which is that he's got he's got a really high word to meaning ratio. <laughs> um, and that's what creates his fantastic voice. And you forget about the colloquial sort of idiomatic stuff he's doing sometimes because you remember the huge vocabulary um, and the sort of encyclopedic, like weird factoid stuff. But he's doing this kind of, I would argue, ironic, I'm a regular guy talking to you kind of thing. 
um, which means he's doing a lot of little words. And so it just produces like a lot of, he just produces a lot of language. And I think the cruise piece in particular, it goes on really long. Um, it's so long. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the book that I had in the, in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. It's a um, hundred pages long. Uh, and the, his, his previous Harper's reportage is like 50 in this book. Um, so it's more than double the day at the fair, which he does first. Um, anyway, the question is, why do I hate him? I don't hate him, um, at all. I love him. But when I was approaching writing this piece, I knew I would have to address it and I wanted to address it. And I wanted to do that in a way that, um, acknowledged it and worked with it, but did not make it the focus of the piece. Uh, because the piece is doing a lot of other things and I wanted to, and also the piece is a lot about women's writing and women's issues. And it's a sort of a reflection on what it means to be a woman writing about a woman's issue. So the thing you have to talk about with David Foster Wallace is his reputation as a misogynist and um, this author that misogynists like bros like, right. And I have a problem with that. Right. But you just have to acknowledge it and move on because like I said, I didn't want the piece to be about David Foster Wallace. It's not about David Foster Wallace. But the reason why <laughs> it's so hard to write a cruise piece is because of David Foster Wallace. Uh, so you have to address it in some way. But I didn't want it to just be a work of literary criticism reckoning with David Foster Wallace's reputation because it's not super relevant here. I could talk about it forever, but for the particular piece, I had a lot of other things I had to do. <laughs> I had to do. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, does that answer? I answered several questions in there. Um, but the point is, the point is, I love David Foster Wallace. And I think I will say, too, throughout the editing of this piece, a couple of editors tried, no one in this room, a couple of editors tried to get me to say directly, but to be clear, I love Dave, right? Like, to, just to be clear, I, ha I love David Foster Wallace. And I sort of resisted saying that directly because it just didn't fit and also I think it's really clear if you are reading any of my writing including this piece that he's obviously incredibly influential to me in my style I don't know if there's another writer that I would consider more influential to me on a pro style level and I think that there's lots of little things in this essay that make sort of reference to a deep knowledge of David Foster Wallace and and I don't believe it's asking too much of the reader to expect that they can like read between the lines in that way but again I didn't want to pause and say by the way David Foster Wallace great guy you know what I mean so yeah. so this is how I sort of dealt with it and now I'm just gonna get into this situation where I'm like oh no 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 I love David Foster Wallace <laughs> I love David Foster Wallace uh which is maybe what I wanted to do all along can I just say, so as the, I think I'm supposed to represent the Wallace bros on this um, <laughs> okay. podcast. You uploaded that clip of Jordan Peterson. So this guy, he's a travel writer and he goes on one of these cruises. I hated liking it because, <laughs> but anyways, I did like it. It was kind of funny. On YouTube. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I thought, I mean, I really, I felt exactly what you said, Lauren, like reading the piece. It was very clear to me. Not only that he's an influence on you stylistically, but there were all these really fun references to the original essay or to other things in Wallace, the the reference to the swanky East Coast magazine, 
the this is water reference. I mean, these are not like they're not even that hard like to get. And um, and I also just really appreciated the way that you, um, you know, you so so there was there was a kind of underlying respect for Wallace. But I also liked that you took it on as like a competition. Like, yeah, I'm going to try to like write a better piece than this guy did. And that's, you know, I thought that was one of the things that was really fun about the essay. Um, it wasn't like underhanded in the way it in the way it approached Wallace or didn't try to like undermine him. It just said like, yeah, I went back and read the piece and. I think I might be able to do better. And um, I thought that was a, that was, that was cool. Thanks. Yeah. I think also I didn't really think about like how I was going to do it before I wrote it, but I was like in a good mood or like maybe drunk or something while I was doing it. (laughs) Everybody kept making jokes to me. Like, are you going to beat David Foster Wallace? And I was like, you know what? The only way, (laughs) the only way for me to do it is to write about trying to beat David Foster Wallace. Um, that's the only way that I could succeed, right? And I think there's something about his reputation now. The idea that is that he's got like a lot of imitators, right? Um, and he's yeah. got a lot of sort of, it's, there's like the, the bros, right? The fans. And then there's people who you can kind of tell they've got this idea of him in their head and they're trying to be David Foster Wallace. Luckily, I'm a woman, um, so I could never. That's like the right, right? Like, the, and this is part of the joke as well. Like, I'm like, well, I can never be David Foster Wallace because no one will compare my work to a man. I had this very jarring experience when I published my first novel, which is no one would compare my work to anything written by a man. And so I was like making light of this somehow, but also because, like, realistically, I'm not going to be accused of like being sort of a like a dick swinging like long sentence writer i'm just going to be accused of being like garden variety pretentious whatever you know (laughs) you know so actually because we keep coming back to it this it's the elephant in the room i think we should probably just address it i mean how has the popular understanding of david foster wallace david foster wallace the meme david foster wallace uh deformed by people's bad memories david foster wallace behind a paywall and therefore the essay does not exist how does that reflect on the popular understanding of the essay and then also contemporary understandings of what is women's literature in like the anti-maximalist or anti-hysterical realism phase that we're we're going through in literature yeah so I think uh I think I said this earlier but I a lot of people in my generation read David Foster Wallace in university or like in a writing class context and that's where I was introduced to him as well um and I was 18 I was a freshman in college uh when he died so I think when he died that sort of inaugurated this very brief period of hagiography which then saw this like intense internet-inflected backlash in the 2010s, right? So he dies in September 2008, I believe. And then I I just reread Jonathan Franzen's um, quite beautiful uh, essay, sort of elegiac. He he goes to an island to grieve his his island best friend. Um, Peace about it, and he's got these sort of resentments that are interesting to read in retrospect because he's saying, you know, 
the literature, you know, as soon as he died, he became this icon. He became this, it's like, you know, a tragic loss for literature and these, the literary establishment that I just remember this very specifically. He says, the literary establishment that never gave him a major prize is now calling mm. him a, a, like an icon. And while that's not true because he did win a MacArthur, <laughs> but, but, <Yes. laughs> but I guess that's not really the literary establishment, right? Like, um, it's hard for me because I was so young, basically, to sort of understand what he, I, I would like to know what he was like, like during his lifetime, which probably John could speak to that a little bit more. I don't I don't know what his reputation was like um, because I wasn't there. Uh, but but I think there's this this huge outpouring of appreciation for his work right after he dies. And then that's sort of immediately followed by the sort of mainstreaming of feminism um, via the internet, which is going to be hostile to his work for any number of reasons, which are very obvious, right? Like it's very long. People hate elitism. They hate long words. They hate long sentences. Um, they and, the, and they don't like white men, right? Um, and he is sort of like the last big white guy representation. I'm writing this big novel. Um, and at the same time, uh, he's got this biography that comes out and by DT Max, uh, and it is sort of making it clear that he was like a bad man, right. And like the, the internet way, right. He's misogynistic. Um, he's got this kind of horrible, uh, like abusive relationship with Mary Carr that she talks about after the biography comes out. And so the, the confluence of like the rising awareness of, uh, sexism, misogyny, and this biography is just like a recipe for him to become a reviled figure. And at the same time, you've got all of these guys who were like in their early 20s, right when he died, when he was becoming iconic. And then they are dating girls and they're like 27. <laughs> these guys are 27 years old. <laughs> and they're like, wow, I love David Foster Wallace. They're probably not quite up on the feminist blogosphere's opinion of David Foster Wallace. And they're giving their girlfriends David Foster Wallace books to read. And the girlfriends are furious, right? So, so it was a perfect storm of like reputation um, tarnishing material among the millennials. Uh, does, yes. does anyone have anything to add about that? Well, the, uh, the only thing I would add is that I think that, uh, you know, fair or not, he became the meme of Wallace. It's a very specific kind of misogyny, too. And, I, you know, I, I mentioned he, um, you know, he himself took or he took himself to be a very different kind of male writer than Roth and Mailer and Updike and the sort of like straightforwardly self-involved, um, you know, uh, men who wrote books about how much they hated their wives and children and cheated on them and this kind of stuff. And, um, but I think in a way he then became exactly the sort of avatar for the millennial kind of, uh, superficially feminist, but under the surface still narcissistic and greedy and somehow, um, uh, misogynistic man. And so, th th so there was that confluence with these 27 year old, uh, boys as well who I think the idea was had kind of learned all the right language they they knew how to say the things that might make them seem like a feminist ally and yet remained you know bad boyfriends or or however they were perceived um and so I think that was that was a big part of Wallace's legacy uh too yeah and he also there was a brief people don't really talk about the male feminist but the male feminist was yeah. a very brief like like 
yes. a, like a, a figure on the internet. Um, and, and it was uh, like an ironic title because if someone was a male feminist, then you knew that they were going to have this sort of insidious kind of sexism lurking inside them, just waiting for you to accept their offer of a <laughs> thousand page book or whatever. Yes. Um, Fake sensitivity. <laughs> yeah. And there's also, I think, another sort of more serious side to this, which is um, the sort of rapid revision, like attempt at revising the canon. And in 2016, there was that Chronicle article um, by Amy Hungerford, who uh, was my professor when I was a freshman, uh, did not introduce me to David Foster Wallace because she writes this blog post for the Chronicle about why she refuses to read Infinite Jest. And she's not saying like, it's because Wallace is a sexist, but there's an undertone to this piece, which is that like, I'm not going to waste my limited time and resources reading this book, which could be argued is not that important. And I am going to introduce my students and edify myself um, and form the canon, use my responsibility to form the canon by um, reading other things, right? Um, so, He's, it's coming at him from both sides. And I think like the Amy Hungerford thing is interesting because like uh, Infinite Jess is incredibly important. Um, and uh, it's, it's like, it's, it's bizarre to sort of make that argument if you actually haven't read it. Um, even though, even though I think in, in this sort of popular, relatively educated consciousness, um, there's this like idea that all oh, the essays are better than the fiction anyway. <laughs> um, um, the short fiction is better than the novels. But I think there's also this kind of more legitimate critique of we shouldn't be reading this big, um, pompous. I mean, it's it. it she basically insinuates that he's arrogant for having this kind of like ambitious, like um, retrograde desire to write a difficult long novel that people have to read twice to really understand. Do, um, do you agree with that, Lauren, that the essays are better than the novels? I, we have to get you on record. <laughs> um, no, no, I don't really think they're that different. Uh, to be honest, I haven't read The Pale King, though I'm saving it. Um, I certainly don't think the essays are better than the short fiction. I don't think they're worse than the short fiction. Um, but the short fiction is amazing. But, you know, Infinite Just is amazing. I just, it's, it's, I want, I hesitated to say earlier that the cruise essay is like too long because it's not like every page isn't excellent. It's just like, I don't yeah. want to read it anymore. You know what I mean? And that's not really fair or it's not very serious. It's not like a serious, good way to engage with literature, I believe. And I think the pressures on novelists, writers, literature today are such that I, ad I want to be able to advocate very strongly that you should read like a long, boring thing. <laughs> um, especially because infinite, infinite is not boring it's just like you don't want to read it anymore does that make sense yeah i mean i find the cruise essay a lot more boring than infinite just actually but yeah uh, but yeah i, but, but, I, I mean but I know it's a tenth mean. of yeah. the length you know it's <laughs> well, you know, so why is that why do you find it so much more boring me uh yes well i mean this is actually something maybe i'll turn this into a question partly for lauren i mean one one thing that i found because 
it turns for me into a, a compliment of her essay. I mean, I felt that the Wallace, I feel that the Wallace cruise ship essay, yeah, you have this setup of him as a magazine writer, but there's no real narrative um, momentum or setup to the to the piece other than that, that he's a magazine writer and he's going to walk around this cruise and, and talk about what he sees. And it just feels to me that after you get through the sort of initial really sharp, funny observations about it, um, and some interesting philosophical questions he asks about what we're doing on cruises and what we want from them. The piece just kind of falls off a cliff. There's no real narrative hook. There's no emotional story. There's no, uh, and, and I feel even Wallace himself as the narrator is somewhat confused as a kind of persona in the piece as to, mm-hmm. as to who he is and, and, and what his perspective is. I think, Lauren, you have this nice line in, in your essay about the, his Midwestern relatability complex. Um, that I think is very apt for sort of what's going on in that piece. But then at times he breaks with that and comes across as actually extremely harsh and condescending toward the other, uh, the other people on the ship. And um, so, I, yeah, just in terms of, I, I just think it sort of falls apart narratively in the second half. And there's really nothing that's happening that's very interesting uh, to the reader, it, it, unless you're just sort of completely enthralled with his prose, which by that time I'm not in the piece. And so, yeah, I don't know. One thing I, I sort of was curious how Lauren thought about her own persona going into this, going into her article and, and maybe in relation to Wallace's or not, uh, sort of how you thought about how you related to the to the people on the cruise and, and to what you were doing and what you wanted sort of as a narrator. Yeah, well, I think I have an advantage, which is that, number one, I have this cruise essay already. So as I say in the piece, I make a joke about it. But it does sort of function kind of as a footnote, which is to say, like, if you want to know what a general cruise is like, you can read the David Foster Wallace essay, which covers this ad nauseum in too much detail. I'm not going to do that, right? I'm here to write about Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow, which unfortunately is also not that very, not very interesting. Um, But I sort of had this, like, uh, much more journalistic approach, which is I was looking for a story and I was looking for specifically things about Goop and what what is Goop at Sea? Why is this happening? So that was very sort of focusing for me. Um, and it allowed me to think about like these other questions about women's writing and the relationship to David Foster Wallace. Um, but I also had to find like, I really felt like I wanted to find something that was going to be narratively interesting and to like carry the reader through. And one of the things I did was the sort of like Gwyneth Paltrow specter that's hanging over the piece. And like, is she going to show up? I say at the very beginning, it was important to me to say at the very beginning that she wouldn't talk to me because I thought it was very funny to do. Uh, There was some resistance at Harper's to that initially, but then they were just like, no, you're right. And, and then I added, um, obviously, the boyfriends thing, because my experience as a reader, like whether I admit it or in public or not, is that if you introduce some kind of um, personal drama, people are going to keep reading, even if it's not very well written, even if it's boring, and I hope it's well written. But the boyfriends sort of, it just made a lot of sense for me because this was supposed to be about wellness writing. And I'd done all this research about wellness writing and I'd been reading wellness writing for years and years and years. And it's really a trope that you need to go have this kind of moving spiritual experience and like learn something about yourself and cry and talk like you have a problem that you're working with that you're solving. Um, 
And in general, women's writing is understood to be much more personal, sort of much more interior and having things going on with that. So I wanted to sort of ironize that and also solve the problem of I need this piece. <laughs> I need this piece to have like a, some momentum, like a, like a compelling element that's going to bring you through it. In terms of you sort of made some some com- sl- some slant comments about class position, which I think is something that um, David Foster Wallace struggles with, uh, but which I do not. And I think it is because David Foster Wallace is the child of professors. And yes. knowing many children of professors, I think it's a confusing class position to be in. And he feels very <laughs> anxious about his... It, he, he, I think he deals with this a lot better in the day at the fair, the county fair, whatever it's called piece. Yeah. Because he brings this kind of a, a caricature uh, of a quote unquote native, native companion, which was his prom date <laughs> 12 years before. <laughs> and she's like a real, I mean, I didn't realize I had rednecks in Illinois, but she's like, a, he makes her out to be like a real redneck. Um, but she sort of allows him to make fun of himself uh, in this interesting way. And when he's on the cruise, you know, I understand it's a confusing it's a confusing class of people who go on cruises and a lot of the commentary that you see about this piece and a little bit about my piece is people thinking that people who go on cruises are basically poor. And I can tell you that that is not correct. Um, I grew up in West Virginia uh, and I would say like the cruise class is what my uh, mother specifically aspired to, right? So mm-hmm. I went on a cruise once when I was 13. Again, I could have put this in the piece. There's just not enough room. Um, I went on a cruise once when I was 13. We drove to fucking Cape Canaveral from West Virginia, like 15 hours in the minivan. And it's like a three-day cruise. It's horrible. You have no idea, right? You're 13 years old. Um, but there's this like idea among my family that like every single time we would take a vacation it might be our last vacation right so we need to let go and do this thing that seems so important to american culture right um which at the time in the i guess what it would have been the early 2000s this was cruises like my mom wouldn't let me watch the titanic movie because she was afraid one day if we could ever go on a cruise i would be afraid that the cruise the boat would shit sink so what titanic comes out in like 97 i think so for yes. six so for six years i am prevented from watching the titanic because one day we might be able to afford to go on a cruise and indeed that day did come the boat didn't sink we're still here but the class it's just really hard to articulate what kind of it's not people who don't have money. Right. And I think people think like, Oh, he's making fun of people who don't have money. That's actually not true. He's making fun of people for spending their money in the wrong way, according to him. But he is pretending to think this is a very luxurious, very nice kind of like, you know, very simply um, luxurious experience, which it's not, it's, it's not that either. Right. It is like an American, like middle class sort of, when I say uneducated, I just mean not intellectual thing that it's people do. Culture, right? culture it's, poor, it, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. It's just American culture because they're not. Well, I would say, I would say upper middle class as opposed to lower middle class. And I think that distinction sometimes gets shaved off discussions of class in america because there's no class consciousness in in this country um and just simply that you know the people the people who are on the ships are probably people who 
probably voted for Trump the first time. Well, small business owners like that, that sort of like, yeah. And you know, of society. when I was there, there was a hurricane in Florida and I would walk around the boat and hear people talking about their homes in Florida and whether they had been damaged and their sort of holiday, their retirement, their retired people talking about their home, like their, their homes in Florida. And they're just, you, you know, they're like, I don't even know if they're upper middle class. I'm. It's so dif- difficult to talk about this, like coming from um, a quote unquote coast. I, you know, I am now a coastal, a member of the coastal elite, right? And everyone that I know is secretly fabulously wealthy, and they all sort of pretend. Yes. They all sort of pretend like they're upper middle class. And I want to say, like, and and also we're talking about we're comparing a cruise in 1996 and a cruise in 2023 um and very different they're very different but i will say also someone who travels to europe to go on a cruise is going to have more money than someone who's going who's leaving from cape canaveral right in florida um and and also anyone who wants to go to europe anyway like even in this kind of perverse <laughs> like like way is going to be like have a bit more money um but the, the, then there's another class component to this which is the goop thing. And I talk about this in the piece, right? Which is that there's a real like culture clash that was baffling to me and all of the other journalists who were on the boat, which is that goop is supposed to be this like California, New York, like rich lady, people who are spending their, their leisure time, like looking up new ingredients for like skincare products and like doing weird, um, spa treatments for their health. Um, and spending a lot of time and energy and money on, on themselves um, in some kind of decadent pursuit of, of quote-unquote wellness. Um, and this is just not what the cruise, the general cruise, the general cruiser is. is, is. Um, so I didn't really know who was going to be on the ship because you sort of, the stereotype of the goop customer is someone who is, upper middle class in a coastal elite way or just like fabulously wealthy Mm -hmm. and as i say in the piece that's not who goes on a cruise because the cruise is kind of tacky and again to be clear i'm i'm allowed to call it tacky (laughs) because it oppressed my family okay So, (laughs) so so i'm allowed to be a snob david foster wallace wishes he was allowed to be a snob unfortunately he's not because his parents were professors he has other benefits that I wish that I had but um he's not allowed to be a snob I however am um so so there's just this like really interesting like mix of people that it never really made sense right I think I say that the most expensive cabin on the ship is like upwards of ten thousand dollars but the prices fluctuate so much it can go much more expensive than that and there were people on there who'd paid ten thousand dollars to be there and they're from uh, like the Pacific Northwest, they're from California, and they were just like they have so much money. They're like, I don't know, why not? Why not? Which, <laughs> which they they these were the people who had the most sort of reasonable view of the Goop at Sea venture because they were like, I don't care, you know. It's 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 not like they saved for years <laughs> and made their, yeah. and made their children forego the Titanic in order to to go on this, right? They're just like, I saw it in the newsletter, so I went. The reality of class in America is like incredibly stratified, and uh, I appreciate when rich people are like, "Yeah, I'm rich." I, I much prefer that to this like 
It's refreshing. Yeah, I much prefer that to be like, my parents bought me an apartment, but I still have to pay the mortgage, you know? Like, I just I just don't have time for it. Anyway, um, I hope that answers your question. We could kind of transition back to this question of, well, because in the essay, you don't say wellness is bad. You don't, you don't sort of do a materialist analysis of wellness and say, well, it's because healthcare in America is bad. Uh, women's health is largely ignored. There are a lot of problems that women experience that men don't, and they just go ignored. Or conversely, wellness is kind of a rebrand of eating disorders in a lot of ways. You know, you, you forego that, but you make very clear this connection between the feminist blogosphere of the 2020s and wellness and how wellness is this kind of interesting perversion of that or using certain ideas popularized by actual feminists to sell products. Right. And I think um, I don't do that former sort of materialist critique of it because it's just been done so many times. And I think that the media environment right now is such that like, if it exists 17 times, I'm not going to do it again because I can do something else. Um, and I can sort of refer to this podcast. I mean, this the podcast that I mentioned, Maintenance Phase, they did a Goop episode. But the whole premise of it is that they debunk wellness industry myths, right? And there are so many newsletters. There's just a whole, there's a whole like cottage industry of, of like just a whole segment of journalism that does this or has been doing this for years. And I think what is so dispiriting about the wellness industry is like they just they just keep saying they just keep coming up with new bullshit and so everyone is like it's it's just like the trump thing which is like oh he lies the lie meter the, the thing where the washington post was like here's all how many the times he lies. like the fact it doesn't checkers. matter do you know what i mean because yeah people want and here's what i really think about the wellness thing which is not that these I think it does arise out of these real problems that you're talking about. I think that there is a mental health crisis in America. There is a women's health crisis in America. However, the people who are buying these products are not generally the people who are suffering those things, right? And so the yes. feminine, and this is a very common thing in the feminist blog blogosphere, uh, or was, um, I think still is in certain aspects, which is that critics of a certain class will take historical or contemporary pro problems, um, sort of injustices against women, ways that women are oppressed, and they will say, women are oppressed in this way, and the implication is that I am, and I refuse to do that because I am not, right? Because I'm a member of a certain class, and these are not my problems. These women are not, the women on the Gupati experience <laughs> are not suffering from a lack of healthcare, they are suffering from too much healthcare, right? <laughs> They're buying so much fucking healthcare, and they're like, why do I still feel bad? And it's like, because, because, because you, you know, there are all sorts of reasons, right? Like maybe they, maybe they do have a mental illness, like they should, but they're in, you know what? They're in therapy. They, they're doing, they everything. have access to these. Yeah, I think, yeah. and I, I mean, I just think like there is this, there's another side of this, which is this sort of like mental health industry, right? And everyone's like, oh, I'm mm. meditating. I have my therapist. I do my acupuncture. I like do these like weird, <laughs> just eat, I eat the right things. Like I don't eat gluten. I don't have caffeine. Da, 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 da. And it's just about like desperately managing like your day-to-day -day life. 
so that you don't feel bad ever. And it just doesn't work because you're just going to feel bad sometimes, right? That's life. And if they would just read literature instead of going to Gwyneth Paltrow, <laughs> they would understand that. But they, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, and so I'm just really hesitant to like make that kind of, I think we can bring this back to David Foster Wallace because I was rereading like a bunch of snippets of his work. And he's really, um, he really tries to, empathize with everyone and it sort of results in this him sort of projecting his own loneliness or his own despair he uses despair quite specifically in the cruise essay onto everyone um and i had a useful person to demonstrate that i'm not going to do this which is with gwyneth paltrow herself right she's a fabulous celebrity and you know you're just looking at her and i'm like I don't think she is suffering like I'm suffering. Do you know what I mean? Or even like some of these people on the cruise, right? She's just not. Um, uh, but people are always looking for ways to like fill their time. Um, well, what would David Foster Wallace think of wellness and the wellness industry? Because he was opposed to irony in in the sense that it had been subsumed by the commercial, television, all these different things that it was originally meant to lambast, right? It was this weapon. And then now the weapon doesn't actually belong to the people anymore. It belongs to uh, game shows, TV producers, all this all this stuff. And to him, the opposite of that was this pursuing authenticity, which is manifest in trying to empathize with these people. So I'm curious to see, like, what what do you think David Foster Wallace would respond to authenticity kind of replacing irony as the motive for the commercial or living side by side irony well i don't think i mean i i was said this before and i think john laughed about it which is like i'm not seeing anything ironic in the mainstream media in in literature and film nothing is ironic. i'm not seeing anything that's ironic and there hasn't been anything that's ironic in a long time like that's not a major that Irony is not like any kind of for pernicious or not. It's just not a force in our in American culture right now. What is a force is this idea of authenticity, which um, was very exciting, like right around this sort of explosion of social media. The idea was that everybody can be like more authentic on social media. And now they're just like proliferating social media websites where people can make, tr finally truly be authentic on this one even though everybody sort of understands in the way that they learned about advertising, all of this is fake. Everyone is creating a persona. Everyone has a personal brand. Everyone wants attention. Even if they're not literally selling something, they want something from you. Right. Um, and so authenticity is sort of this kind of, I feel like it's just like a deflated balloon. Like nobody really knows what to do with it. And sometimes you can tell when someone is like really faking it in some way. Um, but, you know, someone like Gwyneth Paltrow, I think she's quite authentic, but that's not good, right? <laughs> like she's not, right. she's not, she's, she's, she's incredibly herself, it, se it seems, but is that good? I don't know. And, and so now I think there's also a sort of sense that, you know, being open, being vulnerable, all these things which I would connect to or sort of like historically link to the value of sincerity in the great irony versus sincerity battle that are popular in the wake of um, like the Donald Trump years. I know we almost forgot. 
uh, <laughs> the sort of political, the political situation, and they are, and also sort of the rise of like therapy culture, right? You should be able to communicate your feelings and like be open and honest, and men should be able to talk about their feelings just as women can, and all this stuff. But I cannot remember what the question was. So no, so it's what, 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 cause, cause... I keep ranting about the thing. No, because <laughs> because we're, we you know we're talking about people feeling bad, not really have a solution, talking about their feelings. That's what Dave was doing. He was just trying oh, yeah. to talk about oh, it, and... and he was trying to present that as the opposite of like this weird, you know, snarky irony. Yes, well, and I... now he's being like. You know, it's like he has too much feeling in his body for contemporary. Well, I but think, what would he think of wellness? I think that he was um, very susceptible to, as you see in Infinite Jest, it's Alcoholics Anonymous in The Pale King, uh, which I only know because I read John's article about the novella that was excerpted for The New Yorker um, in The Pale King. It's like this like weird sort of quasi-religious call you maybe you can talk about this better but basically in all a lot of his work david foster wallace is like searching for like a post god like meaning maker um in the way that like all sort of postmodern literature is right like postmodern philosophy postmodern literature is and and he's really susceptible to like this kind of um if it weren't such a, a women's thing, like he, he maybe would be susceptible to like the wellness stuff and like the spirit, the new age spirituality and people like meditating and like doing all this like group, like workshop kind of stuff that is so popular because he number one has this kind of like, not just Midwestern relatability complex, but just like a, he, he wants to understand normal people and normal people are the ones who sort of get into this stuff. He, he's not allowed to sneer at it basically. So I don't know exactly. Like, I don't know that he would have thought about it that much um, because it is such a women's thing. And I really don't know like that many men, if any, who think about wellness, <laughs> but there is something like, He's definitely, I feel like he's susceptible. I don't know. John can probably speak to this better than I can. I feel like he's susceptible to the like spiritual promise. Um, well, and to, and to self-help. Yes, I mean, exactly. Which would sort of maybe be the slightly more masculine version, I guess. Um, yeah, I would just, I mean, one thing, you know, you, you mentioned he's part of always looking for these forms of meaning, which is a common thing for postmodern writers. But the thing that was distinctive about the way Wallace did it or the places where he found it was that they were very... Um, they were not the places the other postmodern people found it, which was often in some kind of political conjuncture or or a theor- or a you know the or a theory um, or some kind of uh, ecstasy. Um, he he found it in these very what were considered to be kind of sappy places or things that were unsophisticated, things like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or you know working a desk job that takes a certain kind of uh, intense concentration. Um, things that the other postmodern writers had tended to kind of ridicule or mock. And so I think that, I think you're totally right. Like, I think he would have, um, he was susceptible to things like wellness culture. Uh, and, and there are people that sort of accuse him, especially in his later writing of, of becoming more and more, um, self-helpy and sentimental, uh, which I think is in many ways a more convincing criticism of him than the criticism he used to face early in his career of being a sort of 
uh, over clever postmodernist who, you know, was nihilistic or whatever. But um, but he also had this countervailing terror of fraudulence and of things that were that were, you know, pretended to be sincere and were not. And so I think that would have obviously complicated, you know, uh, the way he felt about massive corporations or people like Gwyneth Paltrow promoting celebrities, promoting uh, this kind of thing. I think he would have been really sympathetic to the need that it was serving for people and, and maybe more credulous than, than we would be in, in some ways. But, but I do think there would have been a sort of horror at some of the kind of um, the ways it's promoted and, and, and sold to people. Yeah, and I think, too, this is like a cheesy road to go down. Uh, but, you know, you think like, oh, what would he have thought of social media? And I just don't think he could have handled Like He couldn't have handled even like <laughs> he couldn't have handled even thinking about it. Like he would ne- never be on it. But also just like just it would just crush this. He has this view of humanity that is like he wants like I don't know he sort of like wants to be a part of it as he writes so much about loneliness and like <laughs> wanting to like join the crowd I, th- I think like like he wants crowd, desperately crowd to be a part of humanity <laughs> yeah he wants to be part of humanity but when he if, if he were actually faced with all of the information about humanity that social media gives us I don't know that he would feel that way anymore <laughs> but I don't know how he would like respond um but so much of the stuff in Wallace like from this TV and fiction essay where he he has this kind of manifesto like ending about irony and sincerity which I I feel like set American contemporary fiction like like set American fiction like on its path ever since and this essay comes out in 1993 he a lot of the ideas and a lot of the sort of affect and sort of like persona that he has even is is, was so influential and it is still the way so many writers act in public like the the sort of the ideas are still really um influential even among people who would say that david foster wallace is a misogynist and i hate him right like every (laughs) his sort of sappy no, uh, sincerity totally won. Yeah, yeah. And it, <laughs> no they, question. They don't know. Like the people who, I don't know, They people don't realize like <laughs> he is the one, he's the one who did that. Uh, yeah. And it is. Well, he and then, and then there was like Eggers and his minions, yeah, you know, yeah, there course, were, there, he had course. his helpers, but yeah. But, you know, if Eggers didn't have this kind of like really good foundation, like would it have lasted? Right. I don't know also you know there, there's historical events to consider <laughs> or, or whatever no uh, you mean it's not ju- it's not just novels and essays that determine <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy it uh, yeah i don't know we wanted to talk about irony and sincerity as yes well. i desperately want to talk about irony and sincerity okay, in your essay um well yeah should i ask a question about you should that? ask me a question because i um, no, you should just ask me a question. Well, so, I mean, so you say you're going to, you're going to bring, you're going to unite irony and sincerity once and for all. And, and I was sort of trying to track that, um, that theme throughout your essay. Uh, and, um, so one thought, one, one just local question I had is you mentioned that boyfriend one likes irony. So I see him as sort of representing the pole of irony. 
would you say that boyfriend two is the more sincere of the boyfriends? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> um, but I didn't even think about this. Like I did not do this. What you didn't think. No. Okay. Cause <laughs> no. I saw the, I saw, I saw the boyfriends as playing out the war between irony and sincerity. Throughout they, the... they, def <laughs> they definitely did. Um, they definitely did. They definitely do. Uh, that's absolutely true. But I think like, you know, because this is such an important and like salient debate in American culture, I didn't have to try to find two boyfriends that would represent <laughs> each pole. Like they just came to me because that's the way that the world is organized now. Yeah. Um, you're on an irony team and your sincerity team. But you will notice boyfriend one says a couple of sappy things in there. Um, <laughs> and boyfriend two says a couple of like the th the things that they say the what's what are the things they tell me at the beginning boyfriend one is like you're healing from the wounds of being a bitter person which he, he's he's being totally sincere and boyfriend two is like you're you're worrying about your relationship because you're not finished with your book right um so oh, see i read i read boyfriend one as being ironic when he said that yeah or at no. least sarcastic got somewhat you got the goop hat yeah so. he got the hat well yeah because lauren chooses irony at the end <laughs> Um, but I also, well, I'm supposed to unite them, right? So I think the essay is, I don't know, does it count? Is it, does it seem like I'm not being humble if I say that I feel that the essay is very sad? No, no. I don't okay. So. I feel like the essay is sort of very sad. And my feeling about irony and sincerity is like, it's always treated as if like, once you, like, once you have irony, you can never go back. And it's like, no, you just like have some jokes over here. You have some serious parts <laughs> over here. You make some jokes about the serious parts in the middle. Like it doesn't, it has never really like made sense to me that it's this sort of caricature of the ironic pose as like 90s, like grunge teenagers. And right. I mean, the thing he talks about in this essay from 1993 is like literally a Pepsi commercial. And the thing that has happened over the course of the last 30 years is that writers as individuals have come to be seen as something more than individuals. They've come to be seen not just as public figures or as like sort of authors, but they're sort of seen to like be doing bidding on like whatever political cause. They're just supposed to be kind of like politicians. Right. And they're also kind of like companies. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I think you mentioned this in your, in your piece for the New Yorker about this excerpt from the pale king the idea that like as a writer i'm expected to um i think you say subserve my work to like whatever bigger political cause is just wrong to me right so like if i make an ironic joke about something then the whole thing is like an advertisement for the ironic sensibility and that's like the right that's alt-right right like that's, what, that's the association with irony right it's the alt-right redditor well now now it is i mean it yeah. used to be the postmodern left it used to but be for yeah everybody i know but you can i just believe that you can you can do it it's just I think not right. everybody is gonna get it I, and that's their loss so wait i have i have one more question sorry okay. on, on irony and sincerity in the essay so so you mentioned yeah other contemporary authors and i thought a little bit about you know that that piece you wrote for book forum about the way that writers today you know sort of morally too there's this sense that even when they're writing fiction they're representing themselves morally and and one of the writers you talk about in that piece is Ben Lerner 
And your your point about uniting irony and sincerity also made me think of his. He says in ten o four, I'm going to take you on a journey from irony to sincerity. And so I also wondered if you had him in mind, you know, or 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 these other attempts by writers in your generation to try and deal with this issue of of, of irony and sincerity in the in their writing while you were while you were writing this. Well. Ben Lerner's never far from my mind. Uh, <laughs> good, good. Uh, I mean, mine but, neither, as you know. But also, I think I say, I think I use the phrase "profound experience of art." Yes, that um, was the other place in the essay I saw. I saw yeah. him, and uh, I think I think up. he is sort of under acknowledged. Like he, he's definitely influenced by David Foster Wallace in this kind of slant way, and I think because of all the autofiction stuff, it sort of like got pushed to the side. But it is in this kind of anxiety about irony and like am i i mean the way we would say it now is like am i irony poisoned like am i am i never going to be able to have a profound experience again and i wonder if this is like i don't like to make gendered arguments but i'm like is this a man thing like i don't have a problem having like like emotional experiences i have too many emotional experiences which i try (laughs) to like um sort of moderate by um thinking very hard while i'm writing so that i don't put too much like sappy stuff in my work because it's not good right and i think like the challenge is to express this sort of emotion and sincerity and vulnerability um without like succumbing to sentimentalism or just sort of like saying like and it was also beautiful, right? <laughs> right. Um, and I, again, Ben Lerner is another person that everyone assumes that I hate him and I have to go on a press tour and say, I love Ben Lerner. Uh, <laughs> it's not like that. But I do think there's like something where I'm like, you guys, get it together. You know, yeah. <laughs> like this is serious. Um, and it's at the end of the day, it's all like, you know, the, you know, the end of the of Topeka school is like they go to a protest and it's all really beautiful. And that's not what a protest is. It's just not what a protest is. I think what, what fiction especially needs to be in the future is a space for like real ambivalence and ambiguity um, because there's so much more criticism being published now. There's so many more outlets to do this kind of like, and there's so many more places to just say, say your opinion that like the thing that fiction can do and this kind of long form journalism that like three magazines, including you guys still publish <laughs> is to like <laughs> truly observe what's going on and not be afraid that you're going to like, like do something like harm your political cause by going somewhere and saying what you saw, right? Because I actually don't even think that lying or being inauthentic or or misrepresenting reality in hopes of sort of changing it for the better actually works as a political strategy because other people are seeing things and they, it's just not ringing true for them, right? So then it makes it seem like everything you're saying is a lie. Right. Something I found suggestive or really interesting was I was going to mention that line about the profound experience of art and how, or I sensed, you know, you say um, 
you're looking at the Caravaggios on your day, your day in Italy, and you say, I don't believe a profound experience of art must result in weeping. It can be like a swoon, the black, the red, you feel high, you want to share it with someone you love. And then you text both the boyfriends about it. So for me, that was a very satisfying moment. I felt you were bringing, that was, you know, uh, the sort of irony and sincerity you were going to text your, your feelings about this, about these paintings to both of them. And, um, and it also sort of turned things outward, or I, I sensed a kind of critique or a, a, a comment on the way that a writer, writer both Lerner and Wallace, seemed to play out the sincerity and um, irony debate in a very sort of personal kind of solipsistic way. Do I feel this or do I not? You know, and it's a very sort of inner experience. And I, I don't know, there was something there, I thought, or some suggestion about turning it outward back toward the social and sharing this experience with someone that I found really interesting. Thank you. And also, I will say that Harper's, Harper's the entity made me, they were like, didn't you have didn't anything good happen to you on this cruise? And I was like, yeah, but it didn't have anything to do with the cruise. It was like, I went to go see these Caravaggios. It was sick. And they were like, could you write about that? And I was like, it doesn't have anything to do with any of this stuff. And they were like, what, could you say something nice? <laughs> and I really appreciated that they made me do that. Um, because of course it's not as if I didn't have any nice experiences while I was doing this. It's just like the over the overarching, you know, it's all very true. When I was approaching this, I was like, what was the overwhelming feeling that I had, which is I didn't want to go. This is lasting forever. Like, what's the story? I, it, it's all very true, but it's, of course, there were some really beautiful moments in getting to see Caravaggio was one of them. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a, I think what disappoints me so much about this sort of sentimental, the sentimentality in um, Wallace and Ben Lerner is that it reminds me of the sort of worst tendencies of so-called of quote-unquote women's writing and the ways that um, I think like ideas about women's writing are sort of constraining to women writers because you're expected to sort of do a confessional. You're expected to cry. You're expected to be sort of messy. And like you're expected to like – it's, it's all about the interior, right? If it's, it's the domestic or it's your like internal, your emotional world. And I think there's, there are good reasons why we've sort of reclaimed those topics as legitimate um, topics for like serious literary work. But it is also like a hop, skim, and a jump away from this wellness stuff, which is like incredibly narcissistic. It's like self-obsessed. And it's all about like, I'm having the wrong feelings. It actually doesn't matter what feel your feelings are I think that much to other people <laughs> so I think that's like the perspective that's kind of lacking I mean it's 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 just frustrating that it's been identified as a problem for women's writing for so long that women are always necessarily doing autobiography as if women can't they're not smart enough to do fiction, that it always has to be this confessional thing and it's been confessional for decades and decades and decades and it's like, well, there has to be something, there's something beyond that that should be explored. And yet, you know, if there's a movie where, you know, directed by a woman where somebody shoots a machine gun, be, the, a critic would be like, oh, look at the leaf. The way the leaf falls is so feminine. Like it's everywhere. It's insane. It's just, but it, it, it's so pervasive and we just can't, get out of it and I don't think there's a good 
answer as to why maybe people are dumb. But <laughs> well, I just think like I think there's also this this is a common comment when all the Canals Guard books were coming out, right? Which is that uh women writers, women critics would become a little bit resentful because it's like, oh, when Canals Guard does it, it's a humongous achievement and he's really just like making up stuff about his life for for so long and like when women do it it's it's women's fiction right um and and i was expressing like you know i was joking but i was also being serious um that's another way you can unite ironies and sincerity <laughs> by the way you can say things you can modulate your tone by making a joke one more comment on irony <laughs> sometimes the most honest and authentic way to express something is by acknowledging simultaneously that you know it is funny and that it is ridiculous right but like sometimes like the truest most sincere thing it has multiple layers of meaning I was exp- oh I was expressing sort of frustration at the beginning that I, that no one will compare me to a male writer even if and I'm not really complaining about this this is not actually a problem right like my first novel got a ton of reviews I t- got to talk about it however I wanted like it was an amazing experience but no one will compare me to a man <laughs> and it's not as if like men are the only writers to be compared to but I think like some of the you're just like grouping things in this like girl stuff, boy stuff way still. <laughs> and well, if a man is doing girl stuff, that's like really profound and so great. And if a woman is doing boy stuff, I'm sorry, this is really simplistic. We're reuniting sincerity and already again. If a, if a woman is <laughs> if a woman is doing boy stuff, she's like a self hating like she's got like internalized misogyny, right? Yes. Um, and that yes. that's sort of what I'm talking about with the vulnerability conversation and like all this other stuff. So it's just frustrating, but it's not ruining my life. <laughs> you know? You know? I'm doing fine, so it doesn't really matter. Surely you won't have the problem of not being compared to a man after this essay. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. This is the only reason why this is a long game. <laughs> just get me in the mouth of David Foster Wallace. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask one last question. Okay. Because we've been talking about making shit up or not making shit up which has to do with authenticity so you know franzen wrote that elegiac you know essay about coming to terms with i I hated that i hated that essay by the way lauren we have (laughs) to discuss some other time yeah no why did you hate it I just I I felt that Franz and himself had not worked through his resentments yet <laughs> in such a way oh, that he had control over them. Uh, you know, it's talking about like a piece where the where the writer uh, is too raw or hasn't like dealt with. I mean, I think it's like a fascinating portrait of Franzen's own like projections and uh, you know jealousies and resentments about Wallace. But I did not. I don't know. I found it. I found it hard to read in, in some ways. You know, John, my therapist tells me that it is impossible to ever truly get over something. So perhaps <laughs> I thought it was just like, it was very admirable that he was making quite clear his resentments remained and yeah. that like these were very legible to anyone and that's fine. Also the dick thing that he, that David Frost Rawls drew on his book is very funny. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, th- there is, I mean, th- always to me, the most admirable thing about Franzen is how willing he is to make himself look terrible. I yes. mean, that's like, that's like his thing. Um, but uh, 
I guess I just felt there were many ways in which his resentments came out that were not acknowledged. I mean, there there were certain things he was able to say, this is how I'm feeling, but there were also other elements of that essay I felt were, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. It was a long time ago. It was soon after Wallace had died. I may have been, uh, had my own, not gotten over it myself at the time I was reading it, but but I, 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 did, I did not love it. Well, what we were about to start talking about was the accusations also that he yeah. made of um, of David Foster Wallace sort of making stuff up. And the three yeah. of us were talking about this over email a bit. And I reread all of the material of, that is available about this online. And it's it's quite... It's quite spurious, this like accusation that Jonathan Franzen makes that David Foster Wallace made stuff up. He's really vague about it. Da- David Remnick, this happens at a, in an interview with the New Yorker Festival, and David Remnick kind of puts these words in his mouth in order to like big up the New Yorker fact-checking department. Um, and and <laughs> um, it, it's just... Right, Remnick's like proud, yeah. What was the impl- – Remnick's like, oh, it's not for want of trying that Wallace didn't publish in The New Yorker? Yeah. That was such really a evil. snobby comment. Like, what yeah. was that? <laughs> it's really – it's a really bitchy little interview. And, and <laughs> like, Franzen – Remnick's starting, starting to talk about something else, and Franzen sort of mumbles – and then Remnick is like, what's that? And, and, and Franzen is like, well, Dave and I disagreed about that. And, and, and it's like they planned it in advance. And Remnick is like, David Foster Wallace, you mean? And he's like, yes, we disagreed about like making things up. And from this, he sort of says, David Remnick says, he said it was okay to make up dialogue on a cruise ship. And then Franzen says, for instance, yeah. Um, and so then they have this whole conversation where, like, David Remnick is kind of putting words in Franzen's mouth, and Franzen is kind of, like, going along with it. And they both, and from this has arisen this, like, like idea that basically the only thing that David Foster Wallace did when he was on this boat for seven days was sit in his room and order room service, and he made up everything, which is just not – I don't think it's true, but maybe Harper's has some – there's, there's no way he made up the thing where he loses to the little girl in chess. That was like, <laughs> there was too much raw emotion. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. We I, I asked about it, but there's really no one. Did, do you, did, were you able to do any research into that, Violet, about like what the fact-checking was like for that piece? I don't know. Uh, it's lost a time. No one here. Unfortunately. But I don't, yeah. I don't believe, but I also have a hard time believing that he would... Again, it's it seems like kind of a, a setup again, or something that you would want somebody who doesn't like David Foster Wallace would want to believe David Foster Wallace would do because he's this piece of shit guy who every bad twenty four twenty seven year old guy loves and can't wait to give you in, a copy of Infinite Jazz. Wow. Like he's just he he become it's like it adds to this theory that he's this bad person and bec- again because you can't read what he because of the paywall because it doesn't exist unless it's available for free on the internet of you can't read what he actually wrote in the essay because it's like why would you make up like the stuff he if if it is fiction it's pretty not good fiction (laughs) you know what i mean yeah well i did some research i was talking to you guys earlier i did some research about fact checking in the 90s specifically for something else i was writing and there was this letter to the new york times from 1993 which was about the janet malcolm libel suit and this former fact checker to new yorker was like we used to check everything but we didn't check quotes right and so that is this kind of thing that like 
maybe David Foster Wallace could have made up. Yeah. But now, I mean, people still think, I told you guys this before, but I was closing a piece for The New Yorker while I was closing this piece. And my fact checker, I made a joke about how I was doing this. And my fact checker was like, oh, I thought they didn't have fact checkers at Harper's because of the David Foster Wallace thing. And I was like, fuck that. No, no. I mean, Slander. Well, I think people just don't. I mean, most publications don't have fact checkers. And, and this kind of piece, you know, I think some people thought that I made up the boyfriend part, for example. In something like this, I do think there's a different attitude to truth and, and fiction because in part because there are relationships to social media where people like sort of assume people are making a lot of stuff up all the time, which is quite depressing to me. Well, also everybody hates Harper, <laughs> but they hate us because we're so good. You got to put up with uh, it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was like, oh, I need to use this opportunity to go on the podcast and say that the fact checking department is incredibly rigorous at Harper's. You guys were looking at screenshots of my text messages <laughs> to prove that I was in this toxic trouble. Um, I believe like some of you have seen pictures of the boys, like it's all real. Uh, so I, it, it's hard for me to imagine that David Foster Wallace could have made that much stuff up uh just because there's things he could have made up that would rely on his notes but i don't know now the fact checking is so rigorous that you can't really hyperbolize and you can't sort of like use casual language to describe something because they will be like actually like Gwyneth Paltrow's hair like wasn't that frizzy do you know what i mean <laughs> so so yeah. that's different because that's because we have so many more documentary and sort of contact yes. resources at our disposal now. And that's good. That's good. It makes you like a more rigorous observer and um, it's just better for any, and people can trust the magazine. Yeah. I think, again, I, t I totally think it, it is a technological thing because there's the assumption that you're always recording and perhaps if you're taking notes, there is this fallibility, but I mean, come on, come on. But yeah. We're defending. Come on. <laughs> that's all I have to say. <laughs> I think, I think he's about. There's about to be a, a reclaiming and a renaissance of David Foster Wallace. Lots of people have been sitting quietly, waiting to be allowed to like him again. Um, and this is this is the thing I, I I say to like people who were like upset about the article or about that you said he's who you know... who was upset about the article. No, I just mean like the DFW, you know, people who are who are like you know very sensitive about any kind of anyone who criticizes or, or says anything negative about him. And it's just like, you either have confidence in what he wrote or not. And ultimately like yeah. he, he made it through that the period where there was the really intense backlash. And I sort of agree with you, Lauren. I think it's like people have, it, it's all gotten a lot calmer now and no one's going to throw anything at you if you're reading David Foster Wallace on the subway. And, <laughs> you know, if the stuff is good enough and you believe it is like it will, it will live. I'm kind of hopeful about the next era of media criticism commentary because of all the social media is like collapsing. Yeah. Um, yes. So I'm kind of hoping that like everybody can be a little bit more measured about. Yeah. And, and all the publications that were basically social media. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Or podcasts. Podcast. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you for having me. It was great. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. 
To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save 